0: Thank you so much for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations, and our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about Our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We're continuing in our series called The Book of Acts, and uh, we've looked at the last few weeks, a couple of incredible, incredible people, some great men in the Bible. And so the book of Acts has really been a series all about um, the story of the church, the story of Christianity. It's not just a history lesson, although it is that. It is basically showing us what the church was like so that we can see in a lot of instances what the church should be like today. And we've looked at the lives of great men recently so that you can see how to be a great person for God. And so we looked at the life of Stephen a few weeks ago, and we looked at the life of Philip last week. And so these two incredible men, Stephen, of course, the very first physical martyr in the Bible. He laid his life down for the gospel. He was the first um, person recorded in the New Testament to do that. He certainly was not the last. And we looked at the life of Philip, the great Evangelist. Now, there's two things that are, are the, the same about these two men. And I've mentioned it in both of those messages, which, by the way, if you've not gotten those messages or heard them, you can go to um, our, our info desk right there. And We have these little cards, they're QR codes, uh, cards with a QR code on it. So all you have to do is, is open up your camera. And put it on the QR code and it will automatically take you directly to those messages. You can also take that. It's a great tool to hand that to people. If someone's going through a rough time and you just want to encourage them with the Word of God, they're series specific, you can give them a specific series and say, hey, go listen to this. Um, You don't have to go try to find some confusing website. Just open up your camera and open that. That's a great tool of evangelism. But anyway, so these two men, they were both bridges. And what do I mean by that? In the beginning, the church was based in Jerusalem and the gospel, for many, they thought it was just for Jewish people. And so it was contained to Jerusalem, it was being preached to the Jewish people and that's where it was. But that's not what Jesus told his disciples that he wanted. Jesus commanded them to go into all of the world and we're gonna look at that here in a moment. But these two men were bridges. There were bridges from the gospel being just for those people to the ends of the earth. And they they helped the church obey what Jesus actually commanded, which was this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the very beginning of the book. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus gives them, which in Matthew, what we call the Great Commission. Meaning here is your mission. Go get it. Go do it. Go to Jerusalem, the place you were scared to go because it's where I just died on the cross. Go back there. Go to Samaria, which was the people you didn't like. Those were the half-breed people. Those were kind of the people we don't really connect with. We don't really like them. Go to them and then go to the ends of the earth. So both Stephen and um, Philip were bridges to help them get to the to help the church get to the place of obeying Jesus and doing that. And of course, last week we looked at Philip's life and how he was. He he was a part of the persecution in Jerusalem. Persecution broke out. And if you were a Christian, they were going after you. They were arresting you. They were killing you. They were doing all of these things. And so many of the Christians fled and they ran away. Philip was one of those people who ran to, of all places, Samaria, where he preached the gospel. And a great revival happened. And then we saw last week how once God told him to leave that revival and go down this dusty road, and he goes down this dusty road, and he preaches to this Ethiopian eunuch who in turn goes back to Africa with the gospel, and how we saw how one act of obedience to God could bring this life-changing message to an entire continent. And so we looked at those men, but today we're shifting gears a little bit. And we're going to take a look at the life of a man who, next to Jesus in the New Testament, stands alone as the most important figure in the New Testament. This man's life was so life-changing, so life-altering, this encounter that he has with God, and that he ended up being a vital part to the foundation of the church, to the formation of the church, and to the spreading of the gospel. And the man we're talking about today is a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. Everybody in this place has heard of this man. Most of you have heard his story. But today we're going to dive deep into his story. Now let me tell you something about stories. I love a good story. How many of you love a good story? I love stories with twists and with turns. I love stories. I don't want like, okay, John did this. And then his wife slapped him. Like I don't like that, I want, I want good stories with lots of twists and turns and, and I hate those dreaded words at the end of a movie that just ruins the entire movie for me, to be continued. Because you know it's gonna be about five and a half years before they decide to tell you the rest of the story. But I was thinking about something even doing worship. We give a lot of credit to actors in great movies. I love great actors. One of my favorite actors, Lauren and I were watching a movie by him just yesterday. One of my favorite actors is Denzel Washington. I love watching Denzel Washington movies. He's a great actor. He is the same person in every single movie, but I still like the movies. But we, I love giving, I love watching these great, great actors do their thing, but we celebrate actors so much and we make them celebrities and we make them these role models and these figures. But I think there's some unsung heroes, and the unsung heroes are the writers of these stories. Now, the actors make them come to life, make the stories come to life, the movies come to life, but it's the writers of the story that really, that that capture your attention. I've seen great actors in horrible movies. I think Samuel Y. Jackson is a good actor, but he's played in some dumb movies, And so they're great actors, but if you don't have a good writer, the story doesn't really go anywhere. And what's interesting about a person's story, and what's interesting about your story, is you have a good writer. The writer of that, of course, is God. The Bible calls Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. He's at the beginning of your story, he's already at the end of your story. He has written your story if we follow him. And he has a great story in store for you, and so as we dive into the life of the Apostle Paul, I hope that you see yourself in this story. I hope you see people that you know and love in this story. But let's dive into it. Acts chapter nine, verse one. It says, meanwhile Saul was uttering threats. Saul is Paul, by the way, and I'll, I'll explain that in a little while. Meanwhile Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters and addressed to, excuse me, le- requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way or any Christians he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in changed. Now let me start with the very beginning there. It says that Saul was uttering threats and eager to kill the Lord's people. This man was so passionate about what he was passionate about that it consumed him. It became the very air that he breathed. When he talked, he was talking about killing Christians or putting them in jail. He made all kinds of threats. As a matter of fact, if you go back to chapter 7, it was Paul or Saul who really started the persecution. Some say that he was the instigator of Stephen's death, the very first martyr in the Bible. Because he stood there while everybody else took their jackets off and laid them at his feet. And in other words, there's some people who believe, some scholars who believe, that he instigated and said, y'all go do it. Put your coats right here. Go kill him. That was Saul. And then the Bible tells us that he started this persecution in Jerusalem, going after these Christians, trying to kill them. Why? Because he he wanted to keep the Jewish religion pure, because the Christians were, they were still going to the temple. They were still connecting with the Jewish people, because Jesus was Jewish, and so he came through this line of Jewish people, and so this was, this was infiltrating the Jewish religion, and they did not like it. But Saul took it a step further and said, you know what? I'm going to get rid of these people. I'm going to exterminate them from the face of the earth. I'm going to throw them in prison, and if they won't, I'll, if, I'll just kill them. If they won't repent after that, or really it wasn't repent, but if they won't turn from their ways, I'll just kill them. This man was zealous. He was on a mission to stop the spread of the gospel. Some translation says that he was uttering murderous threats. And what happened is he had gotten approval from the high priest in Jerusalem, the very center of of the Jewish religion. He got approval from the top dogs, if you will, and said, "Go, give me these letters and I will bring them to Damascus. And I'm gonna tell you what Damascus was in a moment. But I'll bring these letters to Damascus and get their approval and then from there I can start killing Christians there too and bringing them back and imprisoning them. I'll do both. Now I want you to know something about Damascus. Damascus was 160 miles north of Jerusalem. 160, I don't know about you, I don't like driving 160 miles. This man got on a donkey or a horse or walked 160 miles to try and get rid of Christianity. That was a man who was on a mission. Full of zeal, full of passion. And why was he going to Damascus of all places? Well, Damascus had a very big Jewish population. Damascus was a place with thousands and thousands of Jewish people. As a matter of fact, some historians believe that there were 40-plus synagogues in this community of Damascus. So that means there were a ton of Jewish people. And the spread of Christianity, whenever Saul got it started in Jerusalem, the Christians started running, right? They started spreading. So guess where one of the places that they spread to? It's Damascus. And so in Saul's eyes, I'm going to go up north, 160 miles, and I will stamp this thing out before it goes any further and put a stop to this whole Christian thing. This man was zealous, and this man was very sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And that's something that I think we need to take a look at in the day and time that we live in. Because just because we're sincere about something doesn't make us right about it. And I think we've been taught, we we somehow believe that if, if a person is sincere, then they can't be wrong. Which is a lie. Because you can sincerely lie to someone because you believe the lie. If you believe a lie is true and you tell someone else, yes, you're sincere, but you are still telling them a lie that they will believe. And the enemy lies to people today, left and right. We live in a culture where there's so many, this is my truth. I hate hearing that. Well, this is this is my truth. When I hear someone say, This is my truth, excuse me for being judgmental for a moment, I just believe it's a lie. I just automatically assume it's a lie. You don't have to clap. You don't have to believe me, but it's the truth. But anyway, it's my truth. (laughs) When people say that this this is my, there is not a my truth and a your truth. There is the truth. And we live in, again, a, a culture and a society that everything is Relative. What's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you may be right for me, but I just just wanna go, okay, why don't I just, I punch you in the face because that feels right to me. Well, that's wrong. Says who? That's my truth. It's ridiculous. There is truth and then there is deception. This is what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And the Bible warns us of this, of this, this is what happens when we make the standard of what the world says right or wrong and not the standard of what God's word says. Because God's word is the absolute truth. Why is there so much pushback against that? Because people don't want the world, the devil, the the people whose eyes have not been opened yet, they don't want to believe that there's an absolute truth. But there is. And God gives us that truth in his word. There's so many people who don't don't want to believe it. And, And there's times I'm just being transparent. There's times I don't want to believe it. When my will wants to do something and God's word says something else, I can come up with a lot of different reasons why I don't want to do that thing or why I don't believe that thing is right. But that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. You can say, Pastor, I don't want to, I don't, I, I don't want to say that someone is wrong if they're sleeping together because they're sincere about it. Pastor, I don't want to say that homosexuality is a sin because I, 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 that... They're they're being sincere about it. I don't want to say that racism is a sin because maybe that person grew up that way. That doesn't change the fact that they're all wrong. It does not change the fact that God's word defines truth. And if we feel something, but God's word says something, that doesn't make God's word wrong and us right. You can get quiet. That's okay. I'm, I'm used to it. Sincerity is not truth. Truth is truth. Saul was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. Now let's talk about this man's life, Saul. Who was Saul of Tarsus? Number one, I'm gonna tell you a few just quick points of of interest about this man's life. Number one, Saul was a very religious man. He was a very religious man. He says this about his own life when in a book that he writes to the church later on, with spoiler alert, he ends up becoming a Christian, if you didn't know that. (laughs) Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 says this. This is Saul talking. He says, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Then he goes on to tell us just who he was and who he is. I was circumcised when I was only eight years old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which is a very, very um, righteous section of, of the Jewish people, a tribe of the Jewish people. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was, I was a member of the Pharisees, which we talked about the Pharisees a few weeks ago and who they were who demanded the strict obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. He not only says I was a Pharisee, I was a strict Pharisee. Like I wasn't one of those people who just showed up at the Pharisee school. I was one of those ones making sure everybody did the right stuff. I was very strict about it. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old, which means that his parents were very strict Jews. They were very strict to say, you got eight days, we're going to circumcise you. How many of you would like that as the membership class at our Savior's Church? How many of you, want, how many of you would, like, would like that? It's, I can just hear you now, baby. I feel like we're supposed to go to Midtown. I don't know why. I think God is calling us to Midtown campus He was not, he was not mixed. He says, I was a pure-blooded Jew. And he wanted to stop Christianity again because he wanted to keep Judaism pure from this whole Jesus is Messiah thing. Even though they were waiting for the Messiah, even though they wanted the Messiah to come, they didn't believe that he just came and that they were guilty of his blood. So he wanted to keep this thing pure. Number two, Saul was a very educated man. He was a very educated man. Later on, he tells, in telling his story from his own lips, he says this, Acts chapter 22, verse three. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Sicilia, Silica, not Sicilia. Like, yeah, I remember him, we went to school together and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem Jerusalem, under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish law and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. He was talking to Pharisees and Sadducees at that moment. But he says something unique. He says, I was trained under Gamaliel. Now, History tells us that this man, Gamaliel, who trained Saul, was a very well-respected religious leader in that day. I mean, this guy was like at the top of the food chain for training Jewish people, training Jewish scholars. So Saul was brilliant because he learned under a brilliant man. And this man would teach them everything about the Old Testament. Saul knew the Bible, but he knew the Old Testament. His eyes weren't open yet. And there were so many questions about the Old Testament because Jesus came and later fulfilled that. But he, under, he knew the Old Testament even though he didn't fully understand the Old Testament. And not only that, he was born and raised in Tarsus. Now the thing about Tarsus, the city that he was born in and raised, was Tarsus was a very, very educated, well-cultured city. I won't go into all of the details of it, but it was, it was conquered by, again, by Pompey and, and and back in, in those those times, Pompey the great general, and he turned it into the, the capital of the place that it was. It was the capital city, and it was well-cultured. There were boats and many different people that would come through from all around, and so Tarsus was very cultured, and it was very educated. When you think of the schools in Tarsus, it's the equivalent today of the Harvards and the Yales. That's what Tarsus was, and that's where Saul was born and raised. So he was a very educated man, which leads me to the next thing. Number three, he was a very interesting mix. He was a very interesting mix of people. Paul was this very strict Jew, right? He had very strict Jewish parents, but he was also a very Hellenized or Greek-speaking Jew. We talked, again, i talked a lot about that a few weeks ago meaning he spoke multiple languages. And he spoke primarily in the Greek because that's where he was born and raised. So he was a cultured man, he was born a Roman citizen. Now this is interesting. This is interesting stuff and a lot of people believe, a lot of scholars, Bible scholars, they believe that Paul's father or grandfather was actually a Roman slave which is the reason why he got a Roman citizenship later when his father was or grandfather was released from being a slave. So he knew the Roman culture well, and there were people that would spend a lot of money to pay for Roman citizenship. Saul got it by birth. He also had a citizenship to Tarsus. So he was a a citizen of Tarsus, a citizen of Rome, and he was this extremely brilliant Jewish man who spent time learning in Jerusalem under this man, Gamaliel. So he was well-traveled. He traveled all over the place. And I want you to see something. this, All of these different things about this man named Saul made up how God used him because God took all of those different things about his life and fit them into one man and God used that for an incredible purpose. Some of us think that the things that have happened in our life are just happenstance. Oh, I was just raised in this place like this for this reason. Or maybe my mama was just like that or my dad was just like, or I have this in my background. God does not make mistakes. And God can take everything about how you're made, how you're wired, and once he redeems it, he can use it for his divine purposes. He can. Because Saul could fit in anywhere. He could hang out with the Greek people, he could hang out with the Roman people, he could hang out with the people from Tarsus, and he could talk about the Old Testament with the most brilliant Bible scholars in the Jewish time. He was a very interesting mix of person. As a matter of fact, he had two names, the name Saul and the name Paul. And I've heard a lot of different pastors say this, when God changed Saul to Paul, he changed his name from Saul to Paul, he he never did that. That's not actually true. Because Jesus, even in in what we're getting ready to read, called him Saul. He didn't change his name to Paul. In that time, there were Hebrew, Paul had a, a Roman name, which was Paul, which means small. And he had a Hebrew name, Saul, which was named after the first king of Israel. I'm going somewhere with all of this. He had two different Names. It's kind of similar to people who come from another country and they move to America. They have a way that their name is said in their country, and then they have a way that their name is said here in, in America. It's like, it's like that with people from around our country when they come to Acadiana. Anywhere else in the world, it's called Richard, <laughs> anywhere else. Thank you, Jenna, she's from, she's from Ohio and Texas. It's called Richard. But once you get over the basin, it's Richard. Get it right. <laughs> you know, it's true. I was talking to a couple in our church just this past week, we went out to lunch, and, and I was telling them, Man, I, was, I was going down um, um, Duchamp Road, uh, Pastor Duchamp. I'm like, then why is it spelled champ? (laughs) It's (laughs) a side note. Anywhere else, it's called called Richard, people. All right, don't even get me started on Abear and Herbert. Don't even, I know there's no R, but still, it's close enough. David. David. Lord help us. All right. David! Come on! the Bible tells us, it's David! I'm gonna preach a message one day about David and Goliath. Oh my gosh, all right, meanwhile back in the spirit, okay. We were first introduced again to this man Saul in Acts 7. Right? As he's killing Stephen. If there were, I say all of that to say this if there were a least likely candidate to get saved, it was Saul. If you're going through your Jerusalem yearbook pictures and you're looking for the section least likely to become a Christian, there was a happy picture of Saul. Which leads me to say this as well there's nobody outside of God's grasp. The worst person you can think of, God in a moment can change their heart. The person you're praying for that you've almost lost hope for, they're not hopeless as long as God is in control. And let me me just remind you of something. God is still in control. He's still in control. So back to our story. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Saul is heading to Damascus. Verse three says this, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What an incredible moment. Because this man has spent his entire life thinking that he was doing the right thing for God. He is trying to kill these Christians because he believes that somehow God is pleased with him. Only to realize in this moment that what he's doing is opposing the very God that he thought he was serving. Saul thought he was doing the right thing. Only to realize he was sinning against God. And I want you to notice something that Jesus says. This is so important. Don't miss this. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But wait a minute. Jesus wasn't there. So how was Saul persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting Jesus' followers. He was persecuting his people, his body, his church. Therefore, he was persecuting Jesus so I want you to understand something. When you sin, you don't just sin against people, you sin against God. Every sin we commit, no matter who it's towards or what, it is always a sin against God. When you gossip about somebody, you're sinning against God. When you lie to people, you're sinning against God. And when we sin, no matter what it is, ultimately the person that we are hurting the most and we are affecting the most is God our Father and Jesus our Lord. When you make a decision, the ultimate sin, I want you to hear this, the ultimate sin is not murder, believe it or not. That's not the ultimate sin. The ultimate sin is resisting Jesus as Lord. It's taking the blood that, that God sent his son Jesus to shed on the cross and going, I don't want that. I refuse that. I'm going to stay the Lord of my own life. That is the ultimate sin. So we ask the question, how can people go to hell? Which let me just tell you, there is a real heaven and there is a real hell. That didn't go away, That didn't go away with modern thinking. There's a real heaven, there's a real hell, and we will go to one of those two places. The ultimate sin is the sin against him, and when we resist Jesus and we decide that we don't want to follow him, it's a sin against God. I love the way Dr. Scott Adams put it. He said this, I read something he wrote, it says, when you resist God, you are not just hurting God and other people, you are hurting yourself. When you resist God, you're not just hurting. I mean, you know, we're hurt by the people we know and love that we just wish they would get it. Yes, we hurt. But ultimately, they're hurting themselves as well as sinning against God. Now, let's continue. Paul later says about his encounter with this moment when Jesus comes and gets his attention and he falls to the ground. He's he's telling his story in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. He adds this piece of information that wasn't in the first part. He says, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language. Remember, Saul, Paul, Jesus spoke to him in the Hebrew language. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He adds that part. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I have to be honest. I've read the Bible for many, many years and did not understand what the heck that meant for a long time, but I've learned it and I wanna explain it to you. What does kicking against the goads means? It's, It's actually a farming term. See, back then, they didn't have tractors. They didn't have John Deere. And I know the big debate was orange or green, right? Their debate was white oxen, brown oxen. Which one do you want? And so they had oxen to to do the job of what a, a tractor would do today. And when those oxen got stubborn and decided that they didn't want to move, they didn't want to go forward, they were done, farmers would use what was called a goad which was just a long rod with a very, very pointy uh, end. It was basically, think like a thumbtack, but very long. And that's what they would use to motivate the oxen. <laughs> they would mo- How many moms in here wish with the last week of school, I mean, the first week of school, you had a little motivation like that for your kids to get up in the morning? That's how they would motivate them to move. And when an oxen got really stubborn, even though they would poke him with the goad, the oxen would still go, I'm not going. And in order to show that they're not going, they would reach back and kick. And they would kick. And when, once they would kick, if they hit that goat in the wrong place, that goat would go right in the flesh of that oxen's leg. So that's what it means when it says that Saul, you're kicking against the goat. In other words, you are hurting yourself trying to resist me and do the wrong thing. That's what kicking against the goad actually meant. And I believe that though Saul was persecuting the church with great passion, there was still something working in Saul's conscience. God was still using something that had happened in Saul's life in his conscience. What was that, you may ask? It was when he debated with Stephen or his friends debated with Stephen. And Stephen was able to shut them all down because he knew the same Old Testament that Saul knew. And not only that, Saul had being growing up in the Roman Empire, he had seen lots of people die But I guarantee he did not see a man die like Stephen died. Because when Stephen died, Stephen was completely innocent. And not only was he completely innocent, as he was dying, he prayed to the Lord, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Don't hold this sin against that man, Saul, who's killing me. So even in this death with great love and great compassion, I, I have to believe that God used that to plant a seed in Saul. How could he be kicking against the goat if he completely believed he was right? There's Something in him, the voice of the Holy Spirit going, Stephen was right, Stephen was right. What you're doing is against what Stephen said. You know Stephen, Stephen disproved you when you debated with him, he was right. See, our job, church, is not to save people. Our job is to plant seeds. It's to plant seeds. We don't save anyone. I, as the pastor of this church, I don't save anybody. But my job is to plant seeds, and God brings the increase. God brings the increase. I have a friend who is essentially a missionary, but he's in Hammond, Louisiana, and he runs a, um, a food pantry. He feeds the poor. This guy, he was one of the ones who served with me in that high school ministry that I talked about last week that I was a part of. This guy, his job is, he he runs a ministry called Our Daily Bread in Hammond, and and it just serves food to those who can't afford it. That's his mission. He has a mobile unit where he'll go places and just serve food to people when there's a disaster or when there's anything like that. He just has a heart to serve. And this man is one of the purest men I've ever met in my entire life. His name is John Hare. One of the purest men I have ever met, his love for Jesus is honest, genuine, sincere, and pure. And I remember, though, hearing the stories of what John was like before he was born again. He was insane. He, was a, he, he drove cars way too fast, drove boats, way. Anything, he was a speed demon. He was crazy. He, was, he would drink all the time. He was not living morally pure with women, but I can remember John telling me, he said, I remember something. I had two friends who would always share Jesus with me because we were friends when we were lost and they would, they would always share Jesus with me once they got born again. And, and he said, they would always try to say something and nothing stuck, nothing stuck except for this one thing, He said, I can remember the two of them sitting in the front seat of a car and me sitting in the back and they reach over and high five and said, we're going to heaven. And he said, that stuck with me and never left me. So while he's lost and he's he's running from God, he knew that he had two friends going to heaven and that dealt with him the same way that I believe Stephen's life and death stuck with Saul. Are y'all with me so far? Let's continue with the story. Acts chapter nine, verse five. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now let me stop there. He says, who are you, Lord? He wasn't saying, Jesus, you are the Lord. I think what he was saying is, whoever you are, you're in charge Whoever you are, you, if you are looking to conquer me, you just did. You've utterly conquered me. Now get up and go into the city and you will, you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless. I bet they did. For they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes were blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. For three days he was blind. For three days he fasted. And I believe for three days he prayed. For three days he was learning who God actually was because he was wrong about him all this time. And he was hearing the voice of God, and the Bible tells us that in a little while. But he has this incredible encounter where Jesus himself shows up to him. How do we know that? He says that later on. This this version tells us it was light that came. But later on, Paul himself and Barnabas later says it. um, they, They say that you saw the Lord. And a man named Ananias says you saw the Lord. Paul tells us in his own words again in another time. Acts 22, verse 9 says this The people with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked in that moment, I asked, What should I do, Lord? See, that Lord and the Lord before were two totally different ones. The first Lord was, You conquered me. I don't know who you are, but you're the man. The second time is, You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the Lord. You're my Lord. And the Lord told him, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. See, when we really have an encounter with Jesus, when, you're, when you really meet him, you want to know the proof of it? The proof of whether or not you've been born again, you've been saved. And I know it's a question that some of you have asked: Am I really? Am I born again? Am I did I really do that? Is it just did I just pray a prayer? Pastor gave always says you can go in the water, sinner, you can come up a sinner. Am I really? Here's the proof. The proof is in the very question that Saul asked: What should I do, Lord? What should I do? If you really want to know someone's been born again, if they've really made Jesus the Lord of their life. It's when they go, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. Lord, I'll follow you. God, this is what I want. This is what you want. I'm going to choose what you want. I will give my life over to you and follow that. Now, hear me. That does not mean that you're perfect. That does not mean that you never make a mistake and you never sin again. And I, I remember hearing a very a pastor that I respect very highly. I remember him saying, Am I? here he was his proof am I going to sin again yes I wish it were true that I, was nev- I would never sin again am I going to sin again yes but do I ever want to sin again a day in my life no no I don't ever want to sin against him because I made him the lord of my life Saul said what do you want me to do lord what's the proof yes sir See, there's a a word that is lost a lot in Christianity that we don't like because we've grown up in a context that this very word is a curse word to us. But this is not a curse word in the Bible. You ready? It's the word submission. Submission. I don't like that word because it means that I'm, I'm underneath. Let me help you. You are. If he's Lord... You follow him as master. We submit to him. And what happened was Saul, this man full of passion, this man full of zeal, this man full of passion, I'm gonna go do this, I'm gonna do this. God comes, Jesus shows up, and this is what he does. Yes, sir. That's the proof of a born again life. What do you want me to do? I don't wanna do it, but what do you want me to do? Jesus showed us the exact same thing. Jesus is in the garden getting ready to go to the cross and he's down on his knees and he's sweating blood and he's asking God if there's any other way I will do this but nevertheless not as I will as you will. What do you want done? Submission to God. That doesn't mean submit to everybody but in a sense we do because we do what's best for other people even when it's not what's best for us that's another message, Acts chapter nine. This is a good, good example of this very thing that we just talked about. Acts chapter nine, verse 10 says this. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, not the one that God killed. The Lord spoke to him in a vision saying, a calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, which still exists today in Israel or excuse me, or in Damascus, to the house of Judas. When you get there, different Judas as well, not the one that hung himself. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. That's your proof right there that Saul was spending time with God because God showed him a vision in prayer. God asked this man to go to Saul, this man named Ananias. And rightfully so, Ananias was very hesitant. How many of you ever had those moments when you read the Bible and the Bible tells you to do something and you feel the Holy Spirit leading you to do something and you start giving God all the reasons why you shouldn't? Like, God, I, I don't know if you saw this. Maybe you skipped this part. And Ananias is going, Lord, this guy you're talking about is the guy who is on his way right now to kill us. Let's not forget that part. This guy is crazy. He is going 160 miles to come and kill us. And you want me to willingly go talk to him? I don't know about this, Lord. And he's rightfully so. He's scared. But I love the Lord's reply. He says, uh, verse 13, we'll go back to Ananias. But Lord, he exclaims, I have heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. See, I believe that the Lord was, when he was speaking to Ananias, he was comforting him. He wasn't rebuking him. He was saying, Son, I know. I know it's scary. I know you don't understand it. I know it doesn't make any sense. But if you trust me, if you obey me, I've got a plan. See, remember, he's the author and he's the finisher of all of our stories. But you have to submit to it. You have to follow it. So this man hears from God what God's plan is and he tells them, this man is chosen by me. If I'm Ananias, I'm thinking, God, can you like choose somebody who's not killing me? This man is a chosen instrument. And I believe he comforts him by saying this, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. What he's saying essentially is this, Ananias, This man is not going to persecute you. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be willing to go through all of these things for my name. He's going to be willing to follow me. And I'm going to show him how much he needs, how much he's going to suffer. And he's going to do it willfully and joyfully. And he does. Saul ends up suffering greatly, but he does it with joy in his heart because he's doing it for his Lord. Even though he was scared and hesitant, Ananias obeyed. Church, I said this last week and I'll say it again. You never know what's on the other side of your obedience. Ananias had to trust God and obey. And on the other side of his obedience was the apostle Paul. The people in your life that you don't want to deal with but God is calling you to deal with. Are the people in your life that God is calling you to reach, but you, you're hesitant or afraid or nervous? What could God do through you if you simply obeyed him? So good. What could God do through you and in our region and in our nation? Everybody wants a solution. You are it. You are the solution. Greater is he that's in you than he who's in the world. Verse 17, so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. And there began the journey of the apostle Paul. He had a BC moment, he had an AD moment. And here we are 2,000 years later reading his letters to the church because of this very moment. Now I hate to tell you this, but there's a to be continued part of the story. (laughs) But as I close, I just wanna briefly share this with you because we all have a story. And God's the author and the finisher of that story. And as I'm closing, I remember mine, and I hope you remember yours. For mine, I was 16 years old, grew up in church. I went to all kinds of churches. My dad was a Church of Christ pastor, even though I was not with him when he was pastoring a church. I was Baptist. I was Catholic. I remember going through uh, uh, First Communion, and I remember being baptized as a little kid in Catholic school. I was almost a Muslim, but they don't eat pork, and I wasn't having that. <laughs> I remember reading books and stuff, and I was like, this is all cute, but I'll take those ribs. <laughs> and then one day, all those, all those years, I th- I grew up in church. Off and on, we would go help be a part of a Baptist church. We would go through Catholic school. My dad was Church of Christ, so I went there sometimes, and it was all of these different mixtures of things and and people. And I thought I was close to God. I remember being in in school, and this kid told me, who was a Christian, he said, you know you're going to hell. And I was like, well, you can go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) I ain't going to hell. I'm a Christian. How do you know? Well, because I was baptized. Well, you are you living for God? No, but I went. I go to church, and I remember a friend of mine who was dating my sister. She was six. I was sixteen years old, and he invited me to come to this this church with him. This church was an hour away. He didn't tell me that on the front end. But he started dating my sister and he started inviting me to go to church. And I was like, man, I'm a Christian. Listen, I know the Ten Commandments, which was a lie. I probably knew maybe three of them, but that doesn't save you anyway. I, I knew the basics. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't watch bad TV. I don't know. But I remember he, uh, he would invite me to come and I, was, I turned him down. Until one day, it was New Year's Eve, 1996, never forget it. I woke up that morning and my mom worked in New Orleans at Charity Hospital. We lived in the community of Slidell, Slidell, Louisiana, about 30 minutes away from New Orleans. And my mom was working at this hospital and she got on what was called the, uh, I believe it was the twin span, if I'm not mistaken. And she was driving to New Orleans along with my younger sister. And my dad was out of the picture at this time and it was just the three of us. I woke up that morning to cut on the TV and saw that there was a 60 car pileup of cars, a giant wreck on the Twin Span. And my mom was en route, so she would have been there right around the time frame. So I, I started getting phone calls from my grandmother. And she, my mom had a cell phone back then. Now, those were the big cell phones, like remember Zach Morris' phone? Some of y'all will get that. In, and so she's she's calling me. Have you heard from your mom? I tried calling my mom, but my mom hadn't answered. I couldn't, couldn't get in touch with her. And so I started praying. I didn't know what else to do. And I remember watching the news, and there was a vehicle that was that ran into an 18-wheel it was a white vehicle. My mom had a white car and it was crushed. And it said there was an older woman and a younger woman who were on their way to Charity Hospital right now who were devastated by this wreck. And my mom's not answering her phone. So I get down on my knees and I pray this prayer and I I never forget it. I, I don't know exactly what the words were, but I remember praying it. And it was something along the lines of, God, if you will save my mom, I'll go to church. I didn't understand Christianity. I didn't understand making Jesus Lord of my life. All I knew is if I go to church, God is there. So I'll go there, I'll do that, if that's what you want from me. Get a phone call probably an hour later and it was my mom. And she said, we're safe, the cell signal was so bad out on there, I couldn't contact her until we finally made it over the bridge. That vehicle that was so crushed ended up being a truck. It was that mangled and devastated so I called up my friend and I remember him telling me okay if you come man I'm telling you there's food there and I was I was slightly overweight I'll just put it that way and so I uh, I said man I'm coming to church with you I'll be there tonight this is New Year's Eve night no teenager wants to go to church on New Year's Eve night but I said man I'm going because I knew God rescued them so I'm going to keep my word to God so I went there there was no food. <laughs> he lied to me. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they just didn't serve it that night. But I remember sitting in this church and it was one of, it was it was a very lively church, I'll put it that way. Very lively. Like the thing I tell y'all not to do run around here, that happened quite often in the church that I grew, that I got saved in. And I remember the people would go up to the front, and there was this pastor there. It was a woman. Her name was Catherine Hardin. I remember she would pray for people, and they would fall down on the ground. And my friend was like, go up there. I was like, are you crazy? I ain't going up there. I was like, if I go, I ain't falling. Not gonna fall. So in the middle of the message, I'm I'm not, I'm not kidding, I'm not making this up. In the middle of the message, that pastor is in full steam ahead and she stops and looks at me and she says, young man, are you a Christian? Are you born again? If you died today, would you go to heaven or hell? And for the very first time, I think in my life, I was honest with someone about that. I said, I don't know. And she said, if you don't know, then you probably aren't. And then she continues preaching. I'm like, so great. You just told me I'm going to hell. (laughs) I'm supposed to just sit here. After the message is over, my friend says, come with me. We're going up to the front. Message is over, so I I figured it's safe. All the UFC stuff is over. So I go up to the pastor, and and she, she tells me, Son, I just felt like I need to pray with you right now. And in that moment, I make Jesus the Lord of my life at 16 years old. And from that moment on, let me just tell you, before that, I was the typical story of a kid my age. trouble with the police, trouble with drugs, trouble with girls. Angry at my dad, bitter, mad, resentful, angry at my mom that my dad's gone, utterly confused about who I am, felt like I had no purpose in life, and in one moment, God brought all of that together and said, I have a purpose and a plan for your life if you will follow me. And I'm 40 years old today, and I've never turned back. What's your story? Because I promise you, there's people out there who need to hear it. And maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, that's not my story. I haven't come to that point in my story yet. Today can be your day. Today can be the moment where you have that moment with Christ that splits your life between B.C. and A.D. And this is your moment. I am going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. The thing I'm talking about is being born again. It happened for Paul. It happened for me. Today is probably, if you're not already, it's your moment. If you will accept it, it's your moment. Don't resist it. Don't walk away. Jesus told a religious leader, he said that you can't enter heaven The kingdom of heaven, that doesn't just mean heaven one day in this ethereal concept. It's the kingdom of heaven here on earth. You don't enter that unless you are first born again. Pastor, how am I born again? It's as easy as ABC. And I say it's easy because Jesus did the tough part. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner. That you're honest with God. There's sin in my life. I'm not close with you. Maybe it's for the very first time. I am not right with you. B, you believe. Believe what? That God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. To solve that problem. And C, you confess. Confess what? That he is now the Lord of your life. And that you're bowing your knee and saying, I will follow So with no one looking around, if you say, Pastor, that's me, I want to be born again. I want to have that moment. I want my sins forgiven, and I am choosing to follow Jesus with my life. With no one looking around, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand, and I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and all of us are going to pray it together. I don't want to single you out, but I don't want you to be embarrassed or ashamed either. This is your moment. One, two, three. If that's you, lift up your hand. If you say, that's me, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See your hand back there. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you. Anyone else? You can put them down. Church, let's pray this prayer. There's nothing magical about these words, but this is our moment of surrender. Say this with me. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on this earth, and a relationship with God the Father. I turn away from my sin. I repent of my sin. And I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you are my father. Jesus, you are my Lord and my savior. Holy Spirit, you are my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen.